you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 5? John chapter 5, and I encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you, especially uh, today, and even to get ready to think hard today. Uh, these words of Jesus that we're going to be studying are not simple to understand, um, but we trust in the beauty of God's Spirit that leads us into truth, and that uh, He is going to help us to understand these things. Let me bring you up to speed about where we just have been and, and kind of what's coming here in John chapter 5. Uh, last week we looked at the healing of the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda. And out of that healing of this paralyzed man from last week, there's a confrontation that shows up between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, in verses 16 to 18, we find that there's two reasons that the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. The first is they say that he's breaking the Sabbath. And the second is they say that he is making himself equal with God. And so in verses 19 through 30, we have Jesus' response to the Pharisees and to their concerns about him, where he explains just who he is, exactly what he is doing, and what he will do in the future. And then in verses uh, 31 through 47, he provides witnesses that attest to exactly who he is. We'll look at those verses, verses 31 to 47, next week. Today, our focus is going to be in chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. Regarding this passage, one commentary says this, In John's gospel, this is the most important passage concerning the deity of Jesus. He himself explains the nature of his work on earth and the implications of his claim to be equal with God. I'm not sure about you, but when I think about the deity of Jesus, I don't often turn to John chapter 5. And so I was struck by that, by that quote, but I'm reminded that sometimes when we preach through books of the Bible, we're surprised at the things we find. And I do find here in John chapter 5 strong evidence for the deity of Jesus. Of course, on the surface, the deity of, of Jesus could seem like a completely unnecessary thing to consider. Why would he, we here in the year 2023 care about someone who claimed to be God nearly 2,000 years ago? And even more distanced seems to be this discussion about the breaking of the Sabbath. But as Jesus explains in these verses, the stakes of what we do with him could not be any higher. The way that we answer John's central question, who is Jesus, doesn't simply have to do with getting a correct answer about some sort of historical figure. It has to do with life and death. I think that's, that's how we often describe the severity of a situation, isn't it? When something is of utmost importance, we say it's a matter of what? It's a matter of life and death. And these are the stakes when it comes to who Jesus is. They are a matter of eternal life or eternal death. And therefore, we must reckon with Jesus as the one who gives life and executes judgment. Let's take that as our big idea for today. We must reckon with Jesus. We're going to have to do something with Jesus. We're going to have to come to some conclusion about Jesus. We must reckon with Jesus as the one who gives life and executes judgment. Death is a reality for all of us, and with that comes judgment, God's word says. 
We often seek to suppress the reality of death, but it sneaks up on us from time to time, doesn't it? And sometimes we're forced to look it square in the face because we're all going to die. We will all face judgment, and every person who has ever lived will do the same. The good news of the gospel is found in the fact that Jesus has come to show us that he can actually give us life and that he is the one who is going to judge. That's someone that we want to know, and that's someone that we need to reckon with. And so therefore, we must reckon with Jesus as the one who offers life and executes judgment. As we look at these verses, we're going to think about them uh, in two big ideas, two truths about Jesus. First will be his unique relationship with the Father, and next will be his unique role as a life giver and judge. These are not completely separate ideas. His relationship with the Father informs his role as life giver and judge and vice versa. And so as we look at these verses, we'll see these things mesh together. But let's look at them now. And as we do, you're going to see that, that Jesus has three statements that begin with the words, truly, truly. And those statements kind of help us to, to get the flow of this passage the one in verse 24 stands at the middle of the passage and seems to be the, the focus. Uh, this phrase is something that Jesus has used already in John's gospel, and he will use it again. Now, if you grew up to, with the King James like I did, then you heard it as verily, verily. Uh, it's actually the word amen, repeated twice, and it seems to be Jesus' way of saying, pay attention. What I'm going to say right now is important, so you need to listen. So when you hear these words, truly, truly, pay attention. This is John 5. We'll focus on verses 19 through 30, but I'd like to start reading in verse 16. After the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool, it says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgments to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We must reckon with Jesus as the one who offers life and executes judgment. Again, a reminder that the Pharisees are upset with Jesus because he's healing on the Sabbath and because he's making himself equal with God. In his, in his response, Jesus first talks about who his father is and the unique relationship that he has with him. So notice first, Jesus' unique relationship with the father. Jesus' unique relationship with the father. What's interesting to note is that while Jesus makes himself equal to the father in deity, he does not make himself equal independent from the Father. There's a distinction between the Father and the Son, but there is also a unity between them. So we might say about this unique relationship that the Father and the Son are united in purpose. As we think about this unique relationship, let's say they're united in purpose. I think this is what's going on here. The, the Pharisees assume that in making himself equal with God, Jesus is setting himself up as some sort of rival deity. And as strict monotheists, as, as people who believe in, in one God, the Pharisees reject any thoughts of multiple deities. But what Jesus is trying to do here is helping them to see that he agrees with them on the oneness of God. He shows that he is equal with God, but he is also united to God the Father. And here we start to delve into the depths of the Trinity. <laughs> the New City Catechism asks this, how many persons are there in God? And it answers, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And here, Jesus says they are also united in purpose. Jesus keeps saying over and over again that he can do nothing of his own accord or of his own initiative, but he only does what he sees the Father doing. So whatever the Father does, the Son does. This could be actually be drawing on the imagery of apprenticeship. If you think about where a son would learn a, a trade from his father. We might even think about Jesus who learned the trade of carpentry or something similar from his earthly father, Joseph. If you've ever been in any kind of a apprenticeship relationship, then you know that you only do what the person who is teaching you does. You don't move beyond them into something bigger. You, you follow them. Some of you, I'm thinking, probably have done, uh, uh, Ian is, is doing um, clinicals. Is that what we call them? So he's learning how to be uh, a physical therapist, and he doesn't do anything that he's not told to do. He does what he's told to do. He's an apprentice in some ways. You don't move beyond, you follow. They, he's shown tasks, they're modeled how to be done, and then he does the exact same thing. This then goes back to this accusation that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying, he says in verse 17 that he only does what the Father does, which leads to this question that some have pondered. Does God work on the Sabbath? Throughout the centuries, many rabbis and scholars have asked this question, and they've said, yes, he has to. Because if God ceases to work, then the world ceases to exist because he upholds it by the word of his power. However, since the world belongs to him, his work can in one sense be seen as a not breaking of the Sabbath. 
I'll leave meditations on, on that to people smarter than me, and you can think more about it if you like. But however you slice it, Jesus says that he works on the Sabbath. Why? Because that's what his father does. It's what he's seen the father do, and so he just does the same thing because that's what he does. Notice Jesus doesn't argue that his miraculous work uh, his miraculous healing wasn't a work, and therefore he wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He doesn't argue that the man's mat carrying wasn't work. He says, God works, and as God's son, I do what my father does. Jesus is not bound by the silly strictures of the Pharisaical law. So now, as we continue to think about this unique relationship between Jesus and God the Father, we see that they're not only united in purpose, but they're also united in love. They're united in love. Verse 20 says that the reason the Son knows, um, the reason that the Son knows what the Father is doing is because the Father has revealed his works to his Son. But why has he done that? We're told it's because he loves the Son. The Father has revealed the works to the Son because he loves him. We could go back to this illustration of a father-son apprenticeship, and we might imagine a father who chooses not to teach his son a trade because they have no relationship. There's no love or affection between them, and so the father has nothing to do with his son. But that's not the case with God the Father and God the Son. There is no rivalry between them, as the Pharisees seem to presume. Rather, there is nothing but love between God the Father and God the Son. And therefore, out of the love, they work in unity for, for the good of all people and for their glory. In looking at this, think about the humility of the Son to function in this way. Jesus is equal to the Father in power and glory. But as we read this, he clearly submits himself to the Father. And he only does what the Father reveals to him. If we think about that, he's actually the opposite of Satan. Satan who, who grasped, grasped after God's power and glory. And in contrast, Jesus, who is equal to the Father, willingly submits himself to the will of the Father. We could go to Philippians where, where we're told that he submits to the will of the He didn't think of equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. He submitted to the will of the Father all the way to the point of a humiliating death on the cross to save sinners. What an amazing thing that Christ has done. And the question comes to us then, if Jesus, the Son of God, and God himself willingly submitted to the Father in great humility, then shouldn't we do the same? Who do we think that we are to rebel against the revealed will of our Heavenly Father as we found it in his word, find it in his word? Who are we to resist walking in God's ways as he lays them out before us? We who are God's children are invited to partner in God's work in this world, to represent him as we follow his ways. Through faith in Jesus, we too can be united in purpose with God because he's loved us and he's drawn us to himself. So would we resist that opportunity out of pride? Or will we submit to his will and join him in his work? We could choose to make ourselves equal with God or even try to exalt ourselves above him and say, I'm going to do what I want. But not even Jesus chose to do what he wanted. He always did what the Father told him to do. And he teaches us to do the same. 
But we see Jesus' unique relationship with the Father here. And now he, Jesus takes us into the depths of who he is. So notice, secondly, Jesus' unique role as life giver and judge. Jesus' unique role as life giver and judge. If you were going to pick two words to sum up this passage, those are the two words I would pick. Life giver and judge. Maybe that's cheating because life giver is hyphenated. Life and judge. You could go that way if you want. But so far, the, the focus up to this point is still on this sign that Jesus performed on the Sabbath, namely the healing of this paralyzed man. But now, Jesus reveals that that sign is the tip of the iceberg. Remember, if you see an iceberg floating in the water, what are you looking at? You're looking at 10%, I think. 90% lays under the surface. And Jesus says that when he raised this man from, uh, from being paralyzed, that was just a fraction of what he could do. He says to the Pharisees, you guys are upset by this? You haven't seen anything yet. In, in verse 20, Jesus speaks of, of greater works meaning greater works than, than healing. And then he goes on to say that the, the greater works that, that he is going to do are the giving of life and the judging of all people on the last day. Again, this is all related to the unique relationship the Father and the Son have. And we see all of these themes woven together in these verses. So I want to try to walk through these verses and understand what Christ is claiming. And again, let me warn you, this is not simple stuff. I wish I could outline it simply, but I think we just need to walk through these verses, try to wrap our minds around what Jesus is saying, and then go from there. So, are you ready? Here we go. Uh, Verse 21, this is what we find, that the Father and the Son raise the dead. The Father and the Son raise the dead. Resurrection from the dead is not something that we find a lot in the Old Testament, It's present in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. We see a picture of it in Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones, but it's not very common, which makes this claim of Jesus pretty astounding. It's one thing for him to raise up a paralyzed man. It's a completely another thing for him to raise up a dead man. But he he will do it. And while there is a a foreshadowing of Lazarus' resurrection here, we're going to see in a moment, as with all of Jesus' signs, that he's in fact pointing to something deeper and greater than physical resurrection resurrection. I think we should also notice at the end of verse 21 that while the Son only does what the Father shows him, he also has authority to raise whom he wills. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. That, that authority is not in opposition to the Father, but rather their wills are so united that the Son can do as he wills, because whatever he wills is also what the Father wills. That's verse 21. Verse 22, we're given another truth, and it's this fact that the Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. The Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. So the Father and the Son together raise the dead, but verse 22 seems to say that the Father has given all judgment solely into the hands of the Son. And now we're taken into the future judgment of all people that the Son is going to preside over. Why has the Father chosen to give this authority solely to the Son? Verse 23 tells us that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In thinking about how to illustrate that, this parable from Jesus came to mind in Matthew 21. This may be helpful. 
Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. Here another parable, Jesus says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now, admittedly, the point that Jesus is making here is different than the one that I am trying to make. But I think what we find is that this idea that the son may not be respected in the same way that the father is. If the father, the one who is seen as the true owner of this field, were to show up there, everyone would have listened to him. But the son was not respected as he should have been. And so the father, here in our passage, wisely does something to garner respect for the son. What does he do? He gives him all of the authority to judge. And then he says that if you reject my son, you're rejecting me. Friends, there's no way to read the scriptures and to accept the deity and the authority of the Father and then reject the deity and the authority of Jesus. It is impossible to honor the Father and reject the Son. Those who do so will face the Son and the Son alone on Judgment Day. And you might envision them standing there before the Son, looking over to the Father, saying to the Father, but I trusted in you. And he's going to say, but you rejected my Son. If you rejected my Son, you rejected me. And I've handed all authority to judge into his hands. Beware of those who reject the deity of Jesus or deny the Trinitarian nature of God. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal judgment. But Jesus here in this central and key statement of the paragraph offers the hope of life and the way to escape eternal judgment. Look again at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Life and judgment come together in this verse as Jesus says, there's a way to receive life and to escape judgment. There is a way to receive life and escape judgment. There's a way to pass from death to life. And what is the way? Do you see it there? It's through hearing the words of Jesus and believing in the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, I don't think those are actually two separate things. I think that John has put them in a parallel structure to show that truly hearing Jesus' words is to believe in the Father. And to believe in the Father 
is found in hearing and receiving the words of Jesus. They are one and the same. Notice the, the focus on believing the words of Jesus. We've been drawing this out, haven't we? This distinction between sign faith and word faith. And here again, we see that true saving faith is not found in coming to Jesus for what he can give us, but because of the truth that he speaks. To find life in his name, we must believe what he says. We must trust in the Father's plan of redemption. And then he gives us eternal life. He takes us out of death and into life. Just pause and consider the power of the promise in verse 24. Don't let the gift of eternal life given by God in Christ fade in your mind. Remember, remember the wonder of the salvation that God has accomplished for us through his son. Remember this, you have been brought out of death into life. We move kind of into a next, a new section in verse 25. Life and judgment show up in two separate hours that Jesus speaks about. One in verse 25 and another in verse 28. The first is the hour of present sal salvation. The hour of present salvation. Notice that Jesus says this hour in verse 25 that it is coming and it is already here. It's coming and it's already here. Right now is the time when those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who truly hear him and believe in his name are born again. They are resurrected. As Paul says, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins are made alive by the grace of God and through faith in him. Jesus had just raised a man to walk. Same words being used in both of these, these sections. Jesus had just raised a man to walk, and he'd done it how? By the word of his power. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead by the word of his power, and Jesus himself is going to be raised from the dead. And all of these physical resurrections point us to the fact that Jesus now, in this hour, can raise our dead souls to eternal life. Why? Verse 26, because God has life in himself and he's granted that the Son also have life in himself. We don't have life in ourselves. We have life because God has given it to us just as he can take it from us. But the Father and the Son, they have life in themselves. It's not given to them. They are the originators of all life. Again, the unique relationship between the Father and the Son is highlighted, and we see that God has given the Son the authority and the power to give life to all who believe, to all those who, will call, who, who he calls out to. All life finds its source in God, and because of our sin, we are dead, but God in Christ offers us life in this hour if we believe. If you are not a follower of Christ today, then behold, the hour of salvation is coming. It's here. The hour of, of salvation is here. The opportunity to find life and to move out of death has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And he calls all people to repent and to turn from sin so that they might find life in him. And if, if not, then they will face judgment. 
So we see the hour of present salvation, but we also see the hour of future judgment. The hour of future judgment. I think there's a transition in verse 27 where we move from speaking about the authority to give life to the authority to judge that Jesus has. Verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Jesus, as the Son of God, has given authority to give life, but as the Son of Man, he has given authority to judge. That title, Son of Man, uh, it can highlight the humanity of Jesus, but it's likely here that it refers to the Son of Man mentioned in the book of Daniel. And in this context of the authority to judge, listen to the words of Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. And as you do, I think it will be clear why when Jesus talks about the authority to judge, he takes up this title from Daniel. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, Daniel writes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus fulfills this prophecy. He comes as the one who not only gives life, but who brings judgment. This hour in verse 28 is spoken of as coming. Do you see that? Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Jesus doesn't say that this hour is already here, because this is a future day, a future day when the resurrected Son of God and the Son of Man will return to judge the living and the dead. And at his voice, everyone in the tombs will come out. What a phrase. At his voice, at his word, All the people in the tombs will come out. And in that moment, there will be two resurrections. A resurrection of life, Jesus says, and a resurrection of judgment. Reminds us of the parable of the sheep and the goats where the people are divided. Another similarity between this passage and the passage of the sheep and the goats is that there's an emphasis on works. It says in verse 29, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Of course, the question that rises in our mind is Jesus teaching that in the final judgment that our, our place is based on the good works that we have done or not done. Are we saved by works? The whole testimony of scripture would say no. And so how do we understand what Jesus is saying here? I'll give you two possibilities. The first one has to do with the nature of of true saving faith, and the other has to do with the basis of our salvation. So think about the nature of true saving faith first. First, Jesus and, and the New Testament writers, especially James, often equate true saving faith with good works. As you read, especially Jesus, it's astonishing how often it sounds like he's talking about salvation through good works. That's not because works save us, but because true belief always results in good works. Exactly how many good works or to what degree a person is 
is changed is, is not something we can measure, but to truly believe in Jesus, to have word faith and not just sign faith changes our lives. So we say that we are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. And suddenly the context of the raising of the paralyzed man makes sense. Because Jesus says to him, now you're well. And then what does he say? Stop sinning. You are well. You have been saved, so stop sinning. Because if you don't, something worse will happen to you. What did we say the something worse is? It's the coming judgment. That's what's worse. Jesus is saying to him, you have heard words of life, so live in them by walking in my ways. And if you don't, if you head back into your old sinful ways, then you prove that your faith was false. And something worse now awaits you. It's the judgment that leads to death. That's what's your what is your future. So the nature of true faith and saving faith helps us to understand what Jesus is saying. And the other way to make sense of this, I think, is to remember the basis of our salvation. I think the nature of true faith and saving faith is more in the context, but let's also just talk about the basis of our salvation as we think about whether or not we're saved by good works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His blood cleanses us from all sin, and his righteousness makes us perfect before him. God requires of us that we pay the penalty for our sin, and that we keep the law perfectly. And Jesus has done all these things on our behalf. He takes our sin upon himself and he pays the death penalty that's required. And he gives us righteousness, his righteousness, so that we are blameless and perfect before the Father. Therefore, our lives in that sense are perfectly filled with good works if we are in Christ. Because God has credited to us all of the good works, all of the perfect life of Jesus. Now, in all of that, don't miss the force of what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that there is a future hour coming when everyone who has died will be resurrected in one of two resurrections. One that leads to life and one that leads to judgment. And what determines which resurrection you arrive at is what you do with the person, the works, and the words of Jesus. It hinges on whether or not you hear the voice of Jesus that gives life to the dead and calls your soul to respond in true belief. Now you might look at that and ask, well, how do I know that Jesus is going to be a just judge? How do I know that he's going to do what is right? Is he corrupt in some way? Maybe someone paid him off. Maybe he's going to show some kind of favoritism. I think verse 30 comes in at this moment to remind us that Jesus is the judge who always does what his father says. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We know that our father is a perfect judge, a just judge, and Jesus is going to judge the world with perfect righteousness. Why? Because he always seeks to do exactly what his father does. I got to the end of this 
sermon manuscript and thought, I feel like I could go back and write a whole nother one <laughs> about these things. But I hope I've given you some slight structure to these verses so that you can just continue to meditate on who Christ is. Because we're, again, in deep things about the Trinity, about who Christ is. But also remember that, that it really comes down to life and to judgment. It comes down to the truth about who Jesus is. And it comes down to the fact that what he presents to us about who he is and who his Father is means that we must reckon with Jesus. We have to do something with Jesus because he is the one who gives life and he is the one who executes judgment now and will execute judgment on the last day. One other way that we might respond as we close, I think we could respond, I think Jesus says that in response to these things, we should marvel, but we should not marvel. <laughs> Did you notice that happens twice? It happens in, in verse 20. And greater works than these will he show them why? So that you may marvel. And then verse 26, do not marvel at this. What's the difference? Well, in verse 20, Jesus says that he's going to do these greater works so that we will marvel, so that we will be astonished, so that we will worship him as the God who gives life and executes judgment. We should be filled with love for Christ and fear of him. We should be motivated to walk in his ways, ready to submit to his will, just as he submitted to the will of the Father. We should be filled with fresh faith in him as the one who gives life and executes judgment. I think that's what it means here to marvel at these things, to understand who Jesus says he is and to receive that and to accept that and to change our lives around that. But then he says in verse 28 that we should not marvel. Specifically, we should not be amazed that he is claiming that he can do these things. I think it means that we should not scoff at him. We should not think that it's ridiculous for him to say that he can do these things. We should not be shocked by his authority. This is a matter of life and death. And if we if we marvel at the fact that Jesus has the audacity to make these claims, if we reject the Son and we reject his authority, then we reject the Father. And to reject God is to reject the only one who can give us life. None of us have life in ourselves, but God does, and he gives it to us, and he can give it to us for all eternity. I pray that we will not marvel that Jesus says these things, that we will not reject him. I pray instead that we would all marvel today, marvel at who the Son is and the fact that for we who have repented and believed in him, he has caused us to pass out of death and into life because, he, because of his authority, because of his humility, because of his deity, and because of his love, all praise to Jesus. Let's take a moment of silence, and then I will pray for us. Father, thank you for the the beauty of your word, for the beauty of your salvation, for the beauty of 
the Trinity. Thank you for sending Christ to save us. Thank you for giving all authority to judge into his hands. Thank you for giving life to us through his death and his resurrection. Lord, we confess that some of these things are hard to understand, but we also remember that, uh, that you are in heaven and we are on earth. We would not presume to think that we can fully wrap our minds around who you are, but by faith we, we believe. We believe who Jesus says he is. Lord, it's a matter of life and death, and so we choose life. We choose to trust in Christ the one who gives life and who executes judgment. I pray for any who are here today who are marveling at the fact that Jesus would make these audacious claims, that they would instead marvel at the fact that he came to live and to die and to rise again so that we could be saved. Lord, I pray that if there's any that are walking in death today, that they would leave walking in life. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.